0: Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Boucher, and this is the AIF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Last week, the Biden administration made the controversial decision to support waiving certain intellectual property protections for COVID 19 related drugs and products, claiming that the waiver is needed to speed up access to vaccines in developing countries. Today we are joined by AAF analyst Tom Lee and director of healthcare policy, Christopher Holt, to discuss their latest insight into this shift. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for having us. Uh, Yeah.
0: Tom, I have to welcome you. This is your first podcast. So welcome. And
2: yay. (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: All right. So let's jump right into things today. We have a lot to talk about, but let's start with the basics. How did this waiver proposal come about, and what would this
2: waiver do? So as we kind of touched on before, many countries, especially developing ones, they've really struggled with accessing COVID-19 vaccines. A lot of them argue that certain intellectual property protections, certain IP protections, especially those under an international trade agreement called TRIPS, have prevented their own manufacturers from going ahead and producing vaccines on their own, thereby slowing access. So in October 2020, India and South Africa, they actually went ahead and formally proposed this to the WTO. And as of now, over about over 100 countries, mostly from the developing world, they have signed on to this proposal, whereas a handful of nations, mostly from the developed world, they're currently in opposition. This waiver would specifically get rid of four protections, copyrights, patents, trademarks and undisclosed information procedures. The problem with all this is that if the waiver were to be passed, it would not address the real problem with manufacturing vaccines, and that is the difficulties with scaling up production. Instead, this waiver will set up a new set of trade policy challenges.
0: Mm. So Chris, many nations ask for things all the time, but the United States has agreed to waive IP protections here, or at least sign on to the agreement. What's led the Biden administration to endorsing this idea?
1: Yeah, in this case, I think that the Biden administration is being motivated uh, by their, their domestic audience. This isn't really about uh, the decision by the Biden administration. It's not about um, IP protection. It's not about COVID vaccines in the developing world. It, it's really about internal domestic politics in the US. So for a long time now, particularly progressives, but, but Democrats broadly have sort of framed um, pharmaceutical companies as kind of the boogeyman, like the bad guys. and. There have been many different efforts to change how prescription drugs are paid for, to curtail uh, industry profits, to to try to sort of claim um that the the industry doesn't really deserve quite the you know the intellectual property protections that they have. And so I, I think that combination with the fact that there's this this compelling story that all these um, people in the developing world, you know, don't have access to vaccines, which isn't entirely true. And this this narrative that somehow we're trading corporate profits for human lives, uh, it just created a situation where I think it was really hard for the Biden administration to sort of resist those political optics. They know that this, this waiver won't address the issue. Um, and it's not clear how much of an issue there really is going to be long term. So...
0: So, Chris, are patent protections actually slowing down access to the vaccine in developing countries? I mean, if so, could the waiver even help? And if not, what's the holdup?
1: Yeah, the the IP waiver won't work. Uh, It won't accelerate vaccine production. And, you know, Tom Lee can jump in as well here. but. Uh, the, the primary obstacle to, uh, to vaccine production right now is simply a lack of facilities that are um, technically sophisticated enough to produce these vaccines. Uh, there isn't an excess of vaccine-capable facility, you know, facilities that could manufacture COVID-19 vaccines uh, that are just sitting idle. Like that, That's not the case. And, and so the suggestion that by lifting IP, these developing countries could, could start manufacturing vaccines in their countries, just isn't very accurate. And I think it's important to note, you know, for example, India has a number of large vaccine manufacturers, and currently India is producing more doses of COVID-19 vaccine than any other country in the world. So it's not like their manufacturers don't have access. They've had this licensed and, the, you know, the companies that have developed these vaccines have been aggressive about licensing them to other manufacturers. One other note, you know, we're projected to produce somewhere between 9.5 and 13.5 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccine this year. So estimates are that we need about 11 billion doses to get to 70% of the, the world's population, assuming that, that you need two doses uh, to be vaccinated. And so we are on track to produce enough vaccine this year to get to herd immunity without any changes to
0: IP and without increased manufacturing. So, Tom, you've mentioned that obtaining this IP waiver through the World Trade Organization, the WTO, would take months. How does this waiver process work and what impact would
2: it have on the effectiveness of this proposal? That, that is a great question. And, and first, it's, a, it's really important to note the World Trade Organization, it's a consensus-based organization. So to get that TRIPS waiver, all 164 members would have to sign on. That's a really tall task especially if you consider the fact that a lot of those members have conflicting interests. And we're seeing that play out right now as as we speak at the WTO. Now, not only that, you would also have to go through the processes of implementing TRIPS, and that happens at the national level. That entails essentially every country entering into something called a text-based negotiation with the WTO. Basically, everybody's going back and forth over the different legal issues or challenges that arise within that country due to the TRIPS waiver. That being said, one of the things about a TRIPS waiver is, you know, the urgency. Quickly get the TRIPS waiver out, quickly allow manufacturers to produce vaccines, quickly get vaccines into people's arms, quickly end the pandemic. In that regard, the lengthy process of implementing TRIPS would definitely have a negative impact on the effectiveness of a TRIPS waiver. However, none of this matters because, like we just said, TRIPS won't do anything to increase vaccine production. So how quickly or how slowly it's implemented, it just doesn't matter.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, one of the other issues that you mentioned, Tom, was that, you know, you've contended that the waiver language is overly
2: broad. Walk us through your concerns with the language in this proposal. I'm, I'm really concerned about the loss of innovation and the loss of incentives. The language in this proposal, it is so broad that any drugs that predate COVID, even those that predate COVID-19, but have a treatment or use for COVID-19, they could lose their patent protection. In fact, the language is so, so broad that all kinds of goods in addition to drugs, so masks, respirators, non-pharmaceutical chemical compounds, all those could lose their IP protection. And so that means that a company that went through all this hard work of, of, innovating this this product and then doing the patent all that all the hard work it, it was for nothing and so really that company is going to look into the future and, and have no incentive to innovate because it cannot it just won't be able to really reap the the benefits of its efforts and so this is especially a problem in the long run because if there were to be a trips waiver perhaps it's these incentives that allowed manufacturers to or encouraged manufacturers to quickly and successfully get vaccines out there. So what happens if we get this trips waiver and those incentives they aren't there anymore for the next pandemic.
0: Yeah, so Chris, what would the impact of such of this of this waiver be, you know, both short-term and long-term in your mind?
1: Yeah, I don't think there's much in the way of short-term impact because like like Tom Lee has said and I've said it it won't address the at least the, the perceived problem, right? It won't do anything to accelerate vaccine production. Uh, and one thing to keep in mind about uh, a particularly pharmaceutical development is that these pipelines are decades long. And so, even when you make changes to policy that disincentivize uh, innovation and, and investment in R&D, uh, a lot of that cost for like the next few years has already been spent. And so, you wouldn't necessarily see immediate changes. Um, I do think that this is a signal along with a lot of the policies that that House Democrats are pushing to not just to the industry, but in particular to venture capital, right, to investors, that the kind of return on investment that makes the risk associated with investing in in pharmaceutical development worthwhile may not be there in the future. And and so, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, drug companies make drugs, they're not going to not invest in in R&D. And there's some truth to that. But investors may not give them the money to do that. If, you know, investing in drug development is much riskier than other kinds of investments you can make, and and so without a certain guarantee that the intellectual property will be you know protected and that there's an opportunity to make back uh, that investment, then you know you will see funding dry up. And then to Tom Tom Lee's point, there there is a risk that you know in in five years or or six years or ten years when the next sort of global health crisis comes around. That we don't have the, the built-up um, work done that, that allows us to quickly respond. Hmm.
0: So, question for either of you. Go to Tom first on this one. Do countries have other options besides forcing uh, companies to give up their IP? And what would those options be more or less effective than simply um, taking the IP and
2: using it? So, there are two other options. First, that option would be compulsory licensing. During a national emergency or really any circumstances of extreme urgency, a foreign manufacturer can ask its national government to issue a compulsory license. With that compulsory license, the foreign manufacturer can then copy and produce a patent-protected drug without the consent of the patent holder. However, compulsory licensing, it still really wouldn't be effective because it runs in really to the same problems of the TRIPS waiver. It does not do anything to increase production. It doesn't do anything to give manufacturers the the technological know-how to scale up production of these vaccines. Uh, So in that regard, compulsory licensing, it's not any more effective than a TRIPS waiver. The other option is voluntary licensing. This is perhaps somewhat a better option because with voluntary licenses, you know, they're consensual agreements. In that consensus, a company can choose to perhaps transfer some trade secrets to another company, thereby giving the manufacturers the valuable information they need to produce and scale up production. But that is no guarantee, however. So in that regard, voluntary licensing, it's not a slam dunk. So, Chris,
0: how helpful is IP really? Do these companies have information outside of the IP that is necessary for producing the vaccines?
1: Yes, so the IP is is certainly part of it, but the thing about IP, the reason that it's protected, is that it is available. It's it's publicly available. We we all go and see it. That's why we're not allowed to use it, right? Um, there's other things, trade secrets, that are not made public. They're not. They, they don't have um, intellectual property protections or patents, but uh, but the companies basically keep them secret and and. Particularly on the manufacturing side, there's going to be a lot of trade secrets that are involved in producing these vaccines, which is why, you know, to the point Tom Lee made, like the best scenario is where you have voluntary licensing, and and the companies have been pretty aggressive about looking to license their IP and and their their know-how to other manufacturers. So, um, so that that's a that's a second thing. One thing that I think is noteworthy about this waiver that that might fly under the radar is that it does. Also, lift enforcement uh, against um, corporate espionage, basically. So, so while those trade secrets, it's illegal to steal trade secrets. Um, but under this waiver, there would be no enforcement mechanism for that. So, in effect, you would be saying to India, to China, uh, to whoever, hey, it's open season on pharma's trade secrets right now. Go ahead and hack them because there's there's no recourse. So that's that's another uh, part of this, and and I think it gets at why. India and, and South Africa and very quietly China are pushing this whole thing because they are not, they're not foolish. They know there's no excess capacity to, to produce these vaccines. This is about getting access to intellectual property, to trade secrets, to know-how that have been developed in companies that are based in other countries, to to sort of kickstart their own biopharmaceutical industry, you know, particularly in China. They're they're looking to to take advantage of this to to get more technical know-how.
0: Some could argue that IP protections are less um, applicable here since the U.S. government has funded so much of the research underlying these vaccines. Chris, what do you think of that argument?
1: Well, so, so Tom Lee addressed this a little bit when he talked about how broad the waiver is and, and how much it applies to. There, there's lots of um, of medication, of treatments, of compounds, et cetera, uh, that have been developed over an extended period of time that are useful in treating COVID or responding to COVID that would get caught up in this. Um, I think the other thing about uh, you know, particularly thinking about uh, government investment in the vaccine process, and it hasn't just been U.S. government investment. Although the investments from Operation Warp Speed were substantial, uh, is is that those investments would not have been sufficient or useful if a lot of groundwork hadn't already been laid. You know, companies have been researching mRNA for you know messenger RNA for you know decades now, uh, and so while this is the first time we've seen it applied. You know, without that that history of research, you 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 wouldn't have had the ability to to ramp up. Um, so so certainly government funding is important here, um, and I don't want to understate that. But it it's not it's not exclusively driving the development. There's been a lot of work these companies have put in prior to to the pandemic starting.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So what about the booster shot? I mean, we we're seeing news reports that Moderna and Pfizer they're starting to develop these booster shots. I mean, is that that seems to be one area that this could hurt immediate development? Do you think that research could be at risk? You know, this this is very
1: speculative, and so I will happily speculate. Uh, but I don't I don't think so. In part because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, so much has already been invested in this that for the companies, there's probably not much value in walking away from it at this point, uh, even if there's not a ton of value in developing it either. Where you could potentially see Disincentives is actually manufacturing. It may be at some point that the cost of manufacturing is is such, given the fact that anyone anywhere can manufacture it. You know, there's less incentive for you know a Pfizer or a J&J to to um, to manufacture the booster shots. But in the short term, I don't I don't think there'll be any impact. I, I think the companies are invested not just financially, but I think. Emotionally is maybe not the right word, but like they're invested in fighting the pandemic. They're invested in these products and getting us back to normal. So I don't think in the short run there will be an impact on on boosters from from this. If this even happens, you know, like, like Tom Lee pointed out, uh, the process could take months or longer. It's possible the Biden administration slow walks it. You know, we'll see. So.
0: So, yeah, I mean, that really leads into my final question. Is this waiver really about fighting COVID? Or is there another uh, agenda here, either among progressives domestically or among developing countries at the WTO? Uh, Chris, I'll let you talk about that. I you know I already mentioned
1: this. I think I think for a lot of the countries involved, this is really about trying to take advantage of a crisis to get something for themselves as far as you know to to boost their their own industries in the biopharmaceutical space. And I think there's you know, a general this is true both domestically and inter- internationally. There's this growing sense that somehow the concept of i p is immoral that the idea that knowledge could be could be sort of controlled for financial gain is immoral and 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 that's not like a a totally unreasonable like at first blush sort of sort of thought, but but it it does create problems and incentive for developing new innovation. and, and so, so I think that's part of it. I think largely for the Biden administration, like I mentioned at the beginning, this is this is about appealing to a domestic political audience that really doesn't like pharmaceutical companies, even as pharmaceutical companies are sort of crucial right now to, to responding to the pandemic. You know, without these pharma companies, we wouldn't have COVID vaccines. So we would either be continuing to social distance and wear masks forever,
2: or we would be dying more. So, <laughs> Tom, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would like to add that this really is its just another development in the ongoing debate about IP and, and public health. We saw during the HIV AIDS epidemic something very similar where there are many calls to waive IP protections for HIV medications. So it's, it's definitely definitely something like that.
1: You know, interestingly, there effectively they were. You know, I mean, the companies largely didn't enforce their their patents in the developing world. I think TRIPS even allowed um, under TRIPS, like developing countries were allowed to produce uh, generics or versions of, of HIV drugs. So it, it's not like like the, the pharmaceutical industry or the World Trade Organization have have uh, a history of sort of really hurting the, the developing world and patients in the developing worlds for profit. They they worked through these problems in the past. And they are they're actively trying to get vaccine to people in the developing world now.
0: Yeah. Thank you both for talking about this and writing about this. I have to say, you know, before you guys wrote about this, I didn't even know this was an issue. I hadn't even heard about it. So hopefully people will start talking about it and, you know, thinking about this a little bit more. So thanks for coming on and talking about it and writing about it. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.